Hello everyone, welcome to episode 1003 of Cold Wave Soundcheck. I'm Aaron Pollock. Cold Waves 10 is the biggest show yet, taking place September 22nd through the 25th at Metro, Smart Bar, Riviera Theater, and La Nocturne. Cold Waves is a celebration of Chicago's relationship with industrial music, the memory of a fallen brother, and a fundraiser for Darkest Before Dawn, a nonprofit providing resources and support for workers in the nightlife industry. For more information, including the full lineup and ticket links, head to coldwaves.net. This week, we're chatting with Friday Metro performer Derek Walborn. This is Ghost Feeder.
I have been in a couple of guitar-driven rock bands in high school and college, being that around 15 or 16, I started playing guitar and I was big into, um, you know, I was getting into like the new metal stuff, corn and all that. In and out of bands in high school and through college. And eventually I just got tired of trying to find people to play with that were not only influenced by the same artists, but also would take anything seriously or show up to practice or show up for anything. <laughs> so uh, eventually I decided to just lean more heavily into my electronic influences like Nine Inch Nails and IMX, artists that I had never really been able to draw influence from in a meaningful way before because everything was very analog and it was, you know, guitar, bass player, drummer. So I decided to get a little more serious about that and just figure out how to make that kind of music independently without needing to depend on other musicians as much. Um, so I opened up GarageBand on my little white MacBook at the time, a few albums and a couple tours later, here I am. How is Rochester? I feel like I haven't talked to a lot of bands from Rochester. I wouldn't call it a thriving musical metropolis by any means, <laughs> just based on my experience. When you're playing local shows, are there are they just all in that area, or do you need to travel out to something close by? Like, do you get over to Toronto or something, or trek over to Albany or something like that? The closest would probably be Buffalo. Buffalo, Buffalo isn't a whole lot different than Rochester, but there's a little bit more of a scene there for whatever reason. But the two cities kind of have the same the same things going against them. They're cold for eight months out of the year the rust belt cities both of them try their hardest to kind of get festivals and things off the ground they are a challenging couple of cities to kind of get to get any traction and i haven't played a local rochester show since it might have been 2012 i moved to florida with my wife for a few years then national touring kind of picked up and it didn't really seem as valuable to keep pounding away at the local scene especially just considering the the turnout and just the thin audiences and stuff like that i still have local fans that are that are diehard and, and really excited about everything ghost feeder does but there's just not a lot of people here <laughs> yeah no anytime i i went upstate it just it seemed like it was stuck in a time that no longer exists anymore and i i would always feel bad for people that were trapped there you know, back in the 80s or the 90s, it just seemed like this, this place seems like it's still in the, the 50s and the 60s. It's interesting that it still is like that. Um, I left for a few years and came back and, uh, you know, mostly speaking from a, a music perspective, it seems as though a lot of the artists and musicians here heard Pantera and then just stopped and were like, we're going to try to be Pantera the rest of our lives for the next 15 years. We've played so many shows with so many metal bands. There's just not a whole lot to, uh, as far as electronic acts and, and synth wave and industrial and stuff, we were pretty much it for a little while there, which isn't saying much because I don't think that Ghost Feeder is terribly industrial, but we had a light show and a computer on stage and that made us like incredible to some people. <laughs> the last thing you put out as far as I can tell, was Invited to the Murder, which came out last year. Tell me about that. That's a project I had been working on prior to the pandemic for some time, and I'd been building up um, logistics and music and stuff like that to put together a crowdfunding campaign 
because I did that with my prior album and it worked really well. It was a good way to kind of generate some excitement and keep in touch with people as I was working on the stuff. I had my ducks in a row for that. And then the pandemic really kind of, quote unquote, really kicked in. And it coincided almost to the day that I was going to launch the campaign. So I had some second thoughts about it. Everybody's kind of scared. Everyone's nervous. No one knows what's going on. And I'm like, is this really the best time to be like, hey, guys, pitch in and help me record this rock and roll album. So I posted on social media and I was like, hey, here's what I've been working on. I've been really excited to, uh, to launch this campaign and get you guys involved in this. But it feels like this might be a bad time. Can you just please let me know if you want me to just do a straightforward release and just do my thing? And overwhelmingly, everybody said, do it. We, we need stuff to focus on. We need stuff that's not this to think about and to be excited for. So I did end up launching the campaign. It was thankfully and humblingly very successful. People were very excited about it. And through the course of the next year, instead of just plopping down a collection of songs in the form of an album, as each song was completed, I would release it as a single. So I had a continual flow of new music to share. And every time I put out a new track, I could direct new listeners to the crowdfunding campaign that was still going on. So it started with a feeling of who am I and how dare I do this crowdfunding campaign at the onset of a global pandemic to at the completion, like, wow, that actually kind of worked out pretty well. And I think that people were actually appreciative of having something to, to be excited about and to watch grow in spite of all the noise happening elsewhere. One of the most fun perks that I think I, I might've ever seen in my life is um, the album on the black NES cartridge. Tell me about the idea behind that. And it looks like five people uh, took you up on that one. So that was a perk I actually did on the previous campaign for the previous album. People enjoyed it so much that I, it would have been silly not to do it again. The reason behind that is because I have a lot of video game music influences in the work that I do. And that's mostly because as a kid, video games were where music came from for me. I wasn't interested in the radio, wasn't really interested in what my parents were listening to. And they didn't really listen to a whole lot of music in general. It wasn't really a part of our lives, strangely enough. My musical influences until later in high school were just Mega Man and Sonic the Hedgehog and all this, <laughs> all this video game stuff. I actually remember having a Fisher-Price tape recorder that I would, I would pause the games on our big console TV. You remember the ones that were like a piece of furniture that took up half the room? I'd have my little Fisher Price tape recorder and I'd record the music from the video games and listen to it like on the bus on the way to school and stuff like that. And that kind of never left. I love those old video game soundtracks, not just because they're nostalgic, but also because they're very, they're very good. Some of the musicianship on these NES games is just kind of like crazy, these compositions, and they're working with, within such limited parameters. So anytime that I can, I like to dip into my past influences and the nostalgia and the fun that I had listening to those soundtracks in the work that I do now. And that could be in the form of the music being available on an NES cartridge or the fact that I use video game controllers live or the fact that I use actual Game Boys and stuff like that to make some of the sounds that I use. I really like to dip into that particular 
influence. So, so you're sort of like the, the video game alternative to author and Punisher where Tristan is using those giant machines <laughs> that he has to lug up and down on stage every time. And then you have, have your game boy <laughs> to trigger the sounds. You could say that <laughs> no one ever has, but you could. The first soundtrack I ever bought was Donkey Kong Country for Super Nintendo because I remember Nintendo put it out on a CD and I must have just gotten my first CD player, I think around 93 or 94. And when I saw that was available, I, I, I loved the soundtrack playing the game and I, I used to listen to it like going to bed and waking up and stuff. So yeah, I, I sort of had a little bit of that too. <laughs> there was no reason for these soundtracks to be so damn good and they were and it's it's just incredible that they put in that much passion and love and and artistry into um a game where you just jump around and shoot stuff and most people would think it's just a disposable little noisemaker but they really poured their hearts into these melodies and it's incredible i i mean obviously the the super mario brothers one is the most famous but but to this day i can still sing you the three different themes from tetris I can sing you the, the, the three different sounds from uh, Dr. Mario. Like all those things are still stuck in my brain. And it's interesting also that people that didn't even grow up in that era are kind of rediscovering the aesthetic. It could be a passing trend, but there is, there's just something about those chiptunes that is very unique. You really don't find it anywhere else. So anytime I can kind of put in a little chiptune into a song that's otherwise very produced and, and you know modern sounding... I really like what it does to the texture of the, of the song.
also on your Bandcamp, I notice you have instrumental versions of all your albums. Tell me about the um, the the reasoning behind that and, and what people have been doing with that. Originally, that was done from a logistical strategic standpoint because anytime I release music, I always submit it to music licensing companies to try to get it in shows or games or whatever. And anytime you do that, it's required you have an instrumental version as well so they can do whatever they need to do with it, take the vocals out, bring the vocals back in. Um, we've all seen a movie trailer where it's, I don't know, a Rolling Stones song or whatever, and it's like half instrumental, and then they pick parts of the vocals that pop in and out to suit their needs. So I wanted to make sure I had my bases covered as far as what people might need for licensing purposes. But once I kind of listened to the instrumental mixes without the vocals taking the majority of the focus, I found that it was a lot easier to appreciate some of the production and the textures and things that I put in there. So I decided to just put those on Bandcamp for people who like to get into that kind of thing. I spend way more time on instrumentation and textures and effects and things than I do on lyrics and vocals, just because there's more of it. Not that one is more important than the other, but it is kind of a shame that the vocals always steal the spotlight when I've spent an hour or two getting this reverb texture just the way I want it and no one's ever going to hear it. So I like to provide that to people if they're into production and things like that, because there is a lot of, there's a lot going on. And especially the last couple of albums working with Amir, Amir Durak from Julian K. He's such a great engineer and he, he does a lot of really tasteful stuff in the background that you don't really get to appreciate with me yapping all over it so i just wanted to give people the option to enjoy some instrumental stuff if they so choose it's fun when when you've heard a song a hundred times and and you love it and you think you know it inside and out and you you either listen to an instrumental version or you listen to it on some really good surround sound system where they're isolating parts of the tracks or when Bands put out stems for remixes and you listen to something and you're like, where is that? I don't think I've ever noticed that before. Yeah, it happens with my own stuff too, because I'll get used to listening to it a certain way and then I'll get the instrumental mix and I'll take a listen to it. And I'm like, oh, I forgot I even did that. And then it, it kind of begs the question, like, why did I do that? <laughs> no, one, no one hears it. I don't even hear it and I forgot about it. But it's cool. It's cool to, uh, to go back and, and see stuff like that. And there's some ear candy for people that are into that kind of thing. Similar to that, you you posted on YouTube recently a, a stripped down performance of Shapeshifter. I'm not sure if it's because you know I grew up watching MTV Unplugged, but I I always loved when bands would perform their music and do it in a different way, whether it would be in an acoustic form or you know when Nine Inch Nails put out that and all that could have been released and they and they did their their minimalist versions of those songs. I love that. You know I I wore down Jason Novak, the, the promoter of Cold Waves, who, who's in the band Acumen. When, uh, when we put out the, uh, the Rally and Sustain documentary, I, I demanded that they play an acoustic set because they'd only done it once before. And I, I, you know, I love and I cherish those really rare things that, that you can only get once in a while. So, so tell me a little bit behind the idea of doing it with, with your song. I am right with you on... Nine Inch Nails and, and all that could have been. That release really inspired me at the time. And something about the deconstruction of those songs uh, is something that's 
always been on my mind as I write my own stuff. Over the course of the pandemic, I've been spending quite a bit of time trying to improve just my basic piano playing skills, which um, are not great, <laughs> but I'm getting better. I've always been envious of artists who can sit down with an acoustic guitar or a piano or just, just really minimal elements and showcase their work in a way that's still meaningful and still carries across the power of the songs that they write, especially because Ghost Feeder uh, Live is so technologically involved. Everything is so locked in. There's not a lot of room for, not a lot of room for improvisation or uh, any, any soulful musicianship, so to speak. As I was plugging around on piano and just kind of figuring out how to play better, um, I started working on my own songs and uh, Shapeshifter became an obvious choice because A, it was made up of chords I already knew how to play, which had <laughs> made it easier for me. And uh, I think that the song itself is strong enough where it doesn't necessarily depend on the production and um, all the elements in the studio version to necessarily carry across. Um, I think that a well-written song can be presented in a minimal way and still have power, perhaps even in some ways more so than a fully produced track. So that was something I wanted to explore. And it, it's definitely something I want to do more of. I've got a couple half-baked ideas for reinterpretations of a few of my other songs. I'm at a point now, though, where there's, there's so much stuff for me to work on. I've got so many projects that I'm working on that it's hard to uh, sit down and really focus on one. But I will release more of that, I'm sure, because it was fun. And uh, it does breathe a little bit of new life into songs that maybe feel a little stagnant, having played them for so long for so many years. You recently performed at Dark Side of the Con. Was that your first time being able to, to get out and play since COVID? How, how did that go? It was. I did a couple, they, they certainly weren't ghost feeder shows, but I played at a cafe a couple of times just playing some atmospheric ambient guitar and things like that. But this was definitely the first show that we have played since, uh, I think, 2019. Initially, I was a bit nervous about it. I had all of my live gear packed up in storage for quite some time because once the pandemic really took hold and a tour we were booked for was canceled and it seemed like, oh, wow, live music might be dead. Who knows? Who knows what's going to happen? So I packed up all my stuff because I couldn't look at it all the time and get depressed about what I wasn't doing. In the lead up to this show, I unpacked it all. I put it all back together and I was like, I don't know how to play anything anymore. <laughs> but once I started rehearsing, it was kind of strange to find that it was all right there. It was all still just the muscle memory kicked in. And I remembered all these synth solos and stuff that I hadn't played in years and thought were surely forgotten. I wanted to focus a little bit more on this particular show on how it feels to perform again, more so than making the perfect performance. From that standpoint, it was definitely a success. It felt great to go up there. The crowd was great. It definitely felt like a scenario where people were kind of ready, like everyone's ready for this to be a thing again. So that felt, felt really good. And it definitely energized me to start working on new material, which kind of, I kind of been tinkering at it for a while, but I got back and started working in earnest right away on some new stuff. So it felt good. I was worried it would maybe be a disaster uh, just at a personal level as far as like, oh no, what if this, the first show in like a number of years, there's 
so much pressure on, on it to go well, to determine both my, my mood going forward. And like, you know, I, I, I'm certainly not alone that the past couple of years I've spent a lot of time questioning, is it worth it to keep focusing so much energy on ghost feeder when there's no live shows, what's going on, existential crisis, blah, blah, blah. So it was nice to kind of breach the surface of that and get a nice gasp of fresh air and be like, okay, I, I can still do this and it still has value and it's still fun. Besides uh, your performance at Cold Waves in September, what else do you have coming up over the next few months? I am working on a collection of songs for a new release. I'm not entirely certain if I'm going to go the crowdfunding route. It, it makes sense financially, but it's just a lot of, there's so much work, there's so much shipping and I, I have to make, I have to make it compelling for people to support it with interesting merchandise and things like that. So I'm not entirely sure how I'm going to go about the release of new material, but we also have a, a tour that we're booking in the fall. I can't, it's, there's no official announcement yet, so I can't say much about it, but fingers crossed that everything works out and we get out there and get to see all our friends again. Was there anything that I missed that you wanted to mention? So one thing I wanted to mention is that you may have seen this on social media, and that is that our friend and our tour manager, Troy Hilton, who runs Darker Side of Light Productions, he recently suffered a stroke, very unexpected. And needless to say, he's, he's, he's been hospitalized. Thankfully, he's doing, he's doing pretty well. He is recovering, but he's looking at what will likely be a few weeks of hospitalization followed by months of rehabilitation, you know, to try to get him back as much as he, he can be as far as mobility and speech and things like that. And a friend of his has set up a GoFundMe account where people can donate to his, his, his recovery and help him afford some of the things that he's going to need throughout his rehabilitation and stuff like that. Troy is not, he's not a spotlight kind of guy, but anybody in this scene who's booked shows or been on tour knows him because he's, he's so connected. He does so much for so many of the bands in the scene. If you're a fan of birthday massacre, if you're a fan of comedy Christ, then you uh, have experienced some of the shows and the tours that Troy puts together and tacks on. So what is happening is that people who know the behind the scenes workings of the scene, like musicians and techs and promoters and stuff, we're all pitching in, we're all doing our best to help him out. But we really want to spread awareness of this campaign to the fans who don't know Troy, but definitely have enjoyed his hard work through shows and tours and, and festivals and things like that. So I, I know it's hard to share a, a web link via audio <laughs> or a, a podcast, but you can find a link to his GoFundMe on my uh, Ghost Feeder Facebook page. It won't be very far down. If you are someone in the scene, if you enjoy going to shows, just 10, 15 bucks, just the cost of, of um, you know, a local show, that's the stuff that's really going to add up and is really going to help him out and get him back to doing what he knows and what he does best, which is bringing your favorite bands to your town and making sure everything happens. He's, he's really a, he's a foundational part of the scene. And I know for a fact that without him, I would have never toured at all, for sure. 
anybody listening, uh, if you're able to pitch in at all, find the GoFundMe. It's on my Facebook page, Ghost Feeder. Drop in a few bucks. Everything is appreciated. Do what you can, and we'll get Troy back to uh, putting shows together ASAP.
On this episode, you heard Shapeshifter, Politics, and Gunfire Light. Ghostfeeder can be found at ghostfeeder.com. The GoFundMe for Troy Hilton can be found at tinyurl.com slash helptroyhilton. Our opening music is Euthanasia by Accumination. Our closing music is Messiah by Splinter Group. Subscribe to the show on Spotify, SoundCloud, or your favorite podcast app. Join us next week as we chat with Hapax. Our closing segment each week is dedicated to the inspiration for Cold Waves, Jamie Duffy. Here is Steve Christie sharing one of his memories. The first time I met Jamie was after a show. I'd come up and I'd talk to him and I said, you know, I'm blown away by what you're doing. I, you guys are great. Very humble guy, just super nice. And, you know, I knew a lot, a little bit about, about his background. I knew that basically he, he'd done some engineering, like with ministry and you know, I, I knew that basically him being an acumen was like a huge thing because the combination of his engineering and production skills with Jason is, you know, that's a powerhouse. That was the first time I, I talked to him and I had the occasion to really bump into him probably about, you know, five, ten times after that, just various shows talking to him and just always a humble, super nice guy. Didn't think anything about what he was doing as it being, you know, great. He was very... um you know, very down to earth with, with his accomplishments, you know, and I would see him on stage, you know, before shows, even shows where, you know, like he'd work at Metro or he'd work at House Blues and I would see him setting up and doing all these different things. And he was busting his hump just as much as anybody else on there, you know, trying to get stuff ready and making sure everything was professional and sounded perfect. And, uh, you know, just huge amount of respect for him.